welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon, and this week my guest is Aslan Freeman. Aslan, I think, is one of the best up-and-coming producers out there today. He's based out of North Carolina, and he's done some really, really great work that I'm lucky enough to hear and master from time to time. As you'll hear in this conversation, he's really knowledgeable. I think you can learn a lot from this. As well, once you're done with this, check out his Noise Creators profile, browse his Spotify playlist, and get to know what he's doing. I think this interview is pretty kick-ass, so check it out. Hey, one second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service, and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out, and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what's your chain for recording your voice today? I'm just doing the SM7 straight into my Onyx FireWire board. Nice, nice. So tell me about your background in music. Well, I started actually in theater early on um, as a kid. My dad was the sound and lighting tech guy and helped build sets at the local community theater. Mm -hmm. And my godfather was a director, and so they would put me in plays from a pretty young age and I started like singing to musicals and stuff. And actually most of my life thought that's what I was going to be doing was be an actor. Um, so my mom started making me take piano lessons when I was, you know, probably like, I don't know, six or seven, I feel like. And I hated that so much. <laughs> uh, and of course it was the classic, like you'll thank me later thing, which of course I do. <laughs> uh, and then in middle school started playing drums in the school band and then went into marching band in high school. And, my, and when I was in sixth grade, they bought me like a, regular old trap set and I started learning how to play. So then, yeah, started playing in bands in high school, obviously picked up guitar and stuff and ended up deciding like super last minute that I wanted to go to school for guitar performance or just for music in general, because I hadn't had much theory training and I was kind of interested in figuring that stuff out. And so I thought that would help because at this point I had kind of realized I liked playing in bands and I'd been doing a little bit of recording, just kind of crappily in the basement. So I thought that might be something helpful for me. And then once I got there, of course, the guitar performance wasn't really doing anything for me. So I switched over to a composition major and graduated from UNC Greensboro with that. Then started touring with my band, uh, Future Ghosts or Unifier. Uh, I think it was Future Ghosts at the time. Um, and then, yeah, that's pretty much it. And so how did that get you into producing? Well, my dad, after the theater stuff, he started teaching broadcasting, radio broadcasting at the local college. And he was a live sound guy back in the day when you had to actually tour with your own PA and sound guy and everything. So there's always been gear just lying around our house. And he had like, I think like Cool Edit Pro, 
just <laughs> sitting around that he would use to do voiceovers for like local companies. Nice. Uh, and so I just kind of started fooling around with that a little bit. Uh, and then that turned into once I started playing with other people making crappy demos. I, I think the first recordings I did were me and two of my friends sitting around playing acoustic guitar and singing like breaking Benjamin covers into like Ooh. into like a mini disc recorder. Like just straight Ooh. in. <laughs> there, there's so much 2000s going on Dude, right now. Yeah, it's, just, it's, just, it's just brutal. <laughs> but yeah, and then, thankfully, thankfully both those things got left in the 2000s. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and then I remember the first time I went into like a quote unquote real studio with like this kind of like Springsteen meets Hold Steady, Gaslight Anthem, sort of, you know, American just rock band. We went into a studio that mostly did metal just because it was a buddy that I knew that I had done some intern work for. And I had done some crappy demos for us before. And when we came out and put the EP out, all of our close friends that had heard the demos were like, we like the demos so much better. Because I guess mm. it was just more the vibe that they were expecting for the kind of band. And so that kind of made me think, well, maybe I should do this more often, you know? Um, and so then we ended up you know, getting Pro Tools and I started working on that. And uh, some buddies in this band, Virgin Lung, that are now in that band Youth League, hit me up mm. about doing an EP. And that was the first thing that we're... I had done some other recording for people, but just kind of to try it out. And so that was the first thing where I charged them a little money and really spent a lot of time on it. And uh, I'm still looking back on it pretty happy with the way it turned out, all things considered. And so then, yeah, and then just between like touring and stuff i would try to do it for money because i could keep my schedule open and then as the band started slowing down and i was doing this more and more i ended up uh, moving it out of the parents basement finally and uh, up into the place i'm at in chapel hill now nice so tell us about your studio that you have now it's in a big old house just outside of chapel hill it was built in the 50s uh, my housemate his family owns it they just owned it since i think it's like great great aunts built it or something i think the story goes that they were they were like claustrophobic or something. So all the rooms were divided up with curtains. And then like later on, they separated them into individual rooms. So they're all still really big hmm. and all like wood paneling. Yeah. I don't know. It's just really relaxed out here. We can kind of do our own thing and it gets used as a practice space a lot. And um, yeah, me and two other guys live here and we are, we're all in bands together and stuff. So that's pretty cool. Tell me about the coolest piece of gear your studio has. The coolest thing is probably guitar pedals. I, you know, it's so funny. I knew you were going to say this because you love Man, I can't pedals. get enough of them, yeah. <laughs> I think it's that thing of, you know, it's not what gear you have necessarily as much as how you use it. So I've been more interested in investing in things like guitar pedals where I have more flexibility because I still play out in bands a whole lot uh, rather than investing in a ton of outboard gear that, uh, that I still have to move around. Um, once I get settled in a more permanent studio space, I'll probably start upgrading that more, but I'm really happy with what I've been able to get just from my board and all the pedals and things that I have. I, I can make stuff sound pretty cool, I think, and I think I've learned a lot more approaching it from that way because I'm really forcing myself to figure things out on a daily basis rather than um, necessarily having a huge range of gear options and just, you know, playing with nice stuff. <laughs> Um, nice. so uh, well, yes. I guess the, the two coolest pedals I have then the ones that you use the most are, um, both made by this company called abominable electronics. That's uh, a local guy here in Durham. Mm. And one of them is a don't shred on me, which is a rat pedal clone, uh, like a rat fuzz clone. Um, uh, but it's got like a lot more bass, a lot more low end in it. And also it uses led clipping instead of the original circuit clipping. So it sounds really, really aggressive. And then I also had him custom make me a tube screamer clone a while back that also has a bass boost on it 
and uh, a, a second foot switch that will switch from the tube screamer clipping to the LED clipping. And the artwork for that is actually, <laughs> he got his guy that does all his art to draw a, a picture of me uh, as Milo from the Descendants cover. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> so that's on the front of the battle, which is, <laughs> gets a lot of questions of what, what is that? <laughs> like, that that is pretty rad, though. Yeah, I'm, every everybody should have their own Milo-fication, on <laughs> yeah. or at least every good punk. Right. Well, I'm not a good punk at all, but <laughs> well, so, you, you, you're starting well there. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So, uh, what instruments do you play? Pretty much whatever a rock band needs. <laughs> uh, yeah, like drums, bass, guitar, piano. I can fake it on cello enough to track stuff wow i didn't know you could fake it on show yeah i mean for like pretty slow simple passages i can fake it well enough i play i briefly played stand-up bass uh, in the high school orchestra as did i but that doesn't mean i can even (laughs) fake it fake it the 20 years right right yeah i mean i've only done it like one time and it (laughs) went well enough but no promises. Nice. So we have that saying that, you know, on one side of the spectrum, there's Steve Albini who doesn't really get involved in songwriting. And then you have a John Feldman who gets super involved in songwriting. Where do you see yourself usually on that spectrum when you're working on a record? Uh, I think like most people have said, pretty up the middle generally, um, but happy to go more in either direction, just depending on the project. I really love getting my hands on the songs and really getting into the songwriting with people. We do a lot of my housemates and I do a lot of co-writing with uh, country singers and that's always really fun. Hmm. Uh, and then a lot of the time we'll do the, the co-write and then they'll come back later and we'll, we'll record it as well. Um, so I, I love being able to see the process through from front to back because even though we've written the song, we're, we're still just doing a rough demo. And so then the artist comes back to me with reference tracks and then I get to just like, I've already got their vocal for reference and maybe some scratch guitar. And then I get to just play around for however many days I feel like and lay down drums and guitar and everything else and, and really flesh it out. And that's a lot of fun. But then it's also a lot of fun when I have bands like, like the youth league guys come in where they're tight and they know exactly what they're doing. And I don't want to play too much with their thing because it's not my thing. And I don't necessarily mm. understand it in the way that they do. And I don't want to mess it up as it were by saying, why do you do this six times instead of four? Like who cares? It's good. <laughs> Nice. Um, so what do you think you bring to records most often? I think the thing I've heard the most from people after working together, like feedback wise, maybe against other producers, I don't mean like in a negative sense, but just the difference they've said is that they feel really comfortable mm. um, here working mm. with me, which I think part of it is the the environment, the house just being a, kind of having a getaway feeling. I think just literally the fact that you're in a home, it takes a lot of the pressure off. You don't feel like you're in this like hyper clean studio space where you can't touch anything. And so I think that level of comfort and relaxation really helps a lot. And I think that I feel like one of my strengths as a producer is kind of coaxing things out of people, whether it's getting them to try something new or just, you know, minute tweaks on a performance or whatever. I feel like I can keep the mood light and happy and keep people positive and relax and moving forward without stressing out about what's going on. That is a very good quality. What's a common mistake you see bands do before getting to the studio? There's a lot and a lot of good ones have been said. I think the biggest one for me is just kind of the amalgamation of like not demoing and then what that does. Uh, like, like not mm. only are you not demoing, but maybe you're not practicing appropriately. And then you come in and you just don't really all know the songs as well as you should. I know for me, I mean, thinking about going into the studio with my band in the past, I would be fucking terrified if we hadn't demoed before. Mm. Like, 
I can't imagine mm. just thinking about how much demoing we do and how much we tweak from that before we get to the studio and still changing so much in the studio a lot of times or, or making other. Yeah, I, I just feel like there's no way you're going to get the best final product without coming in already having a rough idea. And really, in this day and age, there's just no excuse. Like, even if it's an iPhone memo, but like now that they've got this music mm-hmm. memo thing, like that's amazing. Oh, it's the be- best. There really is the yeah. best app um, on the phone now. My, uh, the filling guitar player for Unifier, my buddy Walt, he, he will make full demos for his band and GarageBand on his phone. Like, he'll demo out a whole song wow. and GarageBand on his phone. It's insane. Like, <laughs> there's just no excuse to not do it. That's pretty fucking rad. Yeah. What is the a big mistake or something you smart smart you see bands do with vocals? I guess I would say is just like lack of energy, I guess. Like not I don't know, I, f- I feel like it's hard to get people to really understand when they're coming in to record that while they're not going to sound exactly like they do live in the end, we still want it to feel like that. Mm-hmm. And there's just no way to capture the sound of a whole band through all these tiny little microphone capsules without there being some sort of extra level going in. Like there needs to be extra energy. There needs to be extra, like everything has to be kind of exaggerated in order for it to feel like it would live. So you kind of have to overperform. And I, I guess, you know, obviously people just aren't really used to doing that. And then not, not knowing how to sing harmonies is really frustrating for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I found plenty of ways around it. Like a lot of the time, I'll do a scratch track of the harmony for them and then make sure it's lined up with the lead vocal the way it needs to be. And then we'll mute the lead vocal and I'll have them sing along to my scratch Mm -hmm. take. Um, There's ways around it, but yeah, I think just rehearsing harmonies and understanding what it is that you do live and how to capture that feeling and recreate it in the studio, which is, is tough. I know, but nice. What's a smart thing you see bands do during the recording process? Uh, I think, being able to go with the flow is really nice. You know, a lot of people say they want the band to be attentive and and on top of the ball and everything. And and that's kind of where I'm coming from as far as like, be ready to play this part. Like I'm moving through these takes really fast and we need to get this done. So always be ready to to play again. Or if I turn around and say, all right, cool, we're done with that. Like, let's get bass going. Be ready to stand up and grab your bass. Like don't wait until then to go smoke. But at the same time, <laughs> yeah, yes, this is this is def- definitely one that hasn't been said. It is so yeah. true. Um, at the same time, though, I don't know that attentive is the right word because, like, there's times when it's like, okay, cool, well, like, like, fuck off for a bit now. I need to do something, you know, or like, I need mm. to work with this one person on this one thing, and I don't need you guys looking over my shoulder, nitpicking me, like, saying like, oh, I think there was a little mistake. Like, yeah, I know, I know there was a mistake. I heard it, like. <laughs> we're going to do another take, but I need him to change this a lot first, you know, or something like, like there's a lot of other things we need to do and I don't need the peanut gallery necessarily always like, it's okay. You play video games for a minute, you know? (laughs) Yes. Now there, it is a funny thing. Cause like, you know, I always go to that hurry up and wait, uh, saying is it's just like, there's times you have to be paying attention that it's time to hurry up and get to it. And then there's times that you can go literally do nothing for a while. And, and that's what I'm saying is, not only can you, but a lot of times I want you to, you know, like, I, yeah, I, I, I get the attendant wanting the attentiveness, but I, it can be too much sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that there, that there, there's almost like a, we need a traffic light in the studio. It's like, it turns, it turns red. It means get the fuck out and go, go, go play a video game and uh, turns uh, green. It's like, all right, now, now it's time for us to rush through this and really make this well, happen. And the other thing is that here, like 
my quote unquote lounge is in the control room. Everything's in one room. So they're literally mm. sitting on a couch right behind me playing video games. Like it's not like there's, it's not like they can not be paying attention. Like they still have to hear a little bit of what's going on. You know, uh, I, I, I see it, see that one, that, 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 that one, one, one would drive me a little crazy sometimes. Right, so you understand you know, what I'm saying? Be, like, uh, what I would, maybe sometimes we get too many cooks going on. Yeah. When I used to edit drums with bands in the, uh, control, control room, playing video games, the clicks sometimes from the thing, I'd be like, what the hell is that drummer doing there? They and usually, I'd get on headphones and realize, all right, I just have to edit. Yeah, this they usually headphones. turn the sound off. So it's okay. I, and I actually yes. like, uh, drum and vocal editing is like my Zen time to just relax. Mm-hmm. So actually a lot of the time I end up doing drum and vocal edits, like while I'm watching Netflix or something, so I'm kind of used to background noise. Ah, I, I could do that with the drums, the vocal vocals. I can't quite get away. There's, with there's a lot Netflix. more pausing, but yeah. <laughs> yes. So what happens when you and a band disagree about something? You know, I just state my case and kind of tell them, this is what I think we need to make a definitive decision right now. And then let's move on. Like, it's not worth fighting about it and ruining the mood. And, you know, I, I think like pretty much everybody said, like, it's their thing, man. Like, I'm sure my name might be on this, but nobody's really going to care. They're going to care more about the band's name. So, yes. So let's get into uh, how you feel about a couple of modern production things. Um, do amp simulators have a role in your productions? Very rarely. Uh, I don't even really use them for scratch checks, honestly. Mm. I mean, I have, but usually I'll just run a distortion pedal with the board. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I've literally used an amp simulator on one thing ever, and it was because we had like missed a lead on a song, and so the band just sent me a DI track, and I didn't have some of the gear, like my amp that we had used in the record was in the shop. And one of the pedals mm. I'd borrowed from uh, Patrick, the abominable guy, um, I, he had already uh, gotten back. And so I just threw an amp sim on it and ran some of those um, pod farm pedals. And it was, it was a really spacey lead thing. So it was fine, you know, <laughs> but I definitely, yes. I, 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 you know, it's funny you saying this, I think like that's pretty much the only time it's ever made it on one of my productions too, <laughs> is like, Gets get sent the DI and we're at the eleventh hour and I don't even have time to put mic up. Yeah, it was literally like going to mastering like the next morning, <laughs> and I didn't have any of the gear. So <laughs> um, that's the, that's how it's gonna go. Yeah, down. but I definitely uh, obviously like like you said, I love guitar pedals and I love guitar amps and I'm also a live sound guy. So nothing bums me out harder than a metal band showing up without any cabs and being like, here's my line six pot. Let me plug it into the snake. I'm like, God, fuck, why? Like, it's just, so, so that's the thing that happens semi-regularly. I mean, so the, the venue I run at has a pretty diverse range of shows. So I don't necessarily run that many metal shows, but it happens at a disappointing number of metal shows. Yeah, absolutely. That's fucking yeah. wild. Yeah. I can't stand it. So <sighs> yeah. A cab moving air is very important to me. <laughs> yes. How about sample drums? Uh, yeah, pretty much always. Partially because of my kind of limited setup here. Like, ideally, I would have the ability to use like several more mics than I physically do. So I kind of pick and choose based on the project, you know, whether I'm going to go with the extra room mic or bottom snare or whatever I think is necessary. And then. Either I'm going to make it up with samples later or I'm going to tweak things in a funny way. But again, I feel like it goes back to that thing of we're trying to make up for the energy that we're missing because it's not a live performance. And so we've got to kind of make things a little bit punchier, a little bit larger than life to make them feel like you're standing in front of a band in a venue just getting blasted in the face by the drummer, you know? Uh, and so, yeah, it's usually, I'm usually laying in samples of the kit we tracked. So it's nothing 
too crazy for a lot of the stuff I do in the punk realm, but you know, I'll go a little crazier if we're doing, you know, the, the pop country stuff or, you know, obviously an electronic record. Mm. <laughs> How about pitch correction? Uh, also pretty much always. I always tell singers again <laughs> with the, the amping things up. I'm like, just go for it. Give me as much energy, as much emotion, as much power as you can. You know, I mean, when the power is necessary, if you're a little out of tune, that's fine. I can fix the pitch, but I can't make you sound any cooler. You know? Yeah. I mean, even like, I remember one time, like I was like making a girl do jumping jacks in the room before doing a take. Cause she just like sounded tired. Like, And I was like, I just, I really need you to just, just go for it, man. Like give me literally everything you can and I'll, I'll <laughs> fix it if you get pitchy. Cause she's a great singer. And I was just like, I need more power. So if you go sharp, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, it is. I remember recording somebody who, <clears throat> was a teacher by day and like he came in for like three days straight and we just could not get him to sound awake <clears throat> at all. And then it was eventually like, okay, we know coffee is bad for you. We know Red Bull's so bad for you, but you're going to feel like shit yeah. for two hours and we're going to give you all this weekend. And that's when we finally nice. got the take. And it is that thing. You got to acknowledge like somebody's not sounding in the right mood for the track. You got to find some way yep. to get them there. How about your favorite soft synth? Ooh, favorite soft synth. Probably the one I use the most often is Fab Filters Twin. Oh. Um, I really like pulling that up for quick, weird sounds. It's got some really good natural sounds on it, too, actually. So I find myself going to that a lot. And then I also really love uh, Arturia's Jupiter. Mm, uh, another great one. Yeah, I, I use that I just, all the time. I, I just got Analog Lab the other day. So Nice. Yeah, I, lo I love the Jupiter a lot. And... Um, the Moog stuff on there is great for basses, and the Prophet's really cool. Uh, got a lot of really cool pads in it. Nice. Do you master your own records? I have mastered, like, one of my own <laughs> records. <laughs> yeah, um, I definitely prefer to send them out and get that, you know, that extra ear and that last touch. Um, I, like I know a lot of the guys said, like, when I'm turning in a final mix, like, that's done to me. So it's probably best that we then have somebody else look at it and give it the final okay rather than me going well if i think it's done like what can i really do to make it better like am i just gonna end up tweaking it to death like i don't know the the one i did it was just because it was a two-song demo for a friend of mine and she was like yeah it's, it's fine just do something on it real quick and it sounds good whatever but <laughs> it's I, I don't think it's like the most awesome master of all times just kind of quick and whatever nice how long do you usually like to take to record a song and then how long does it usually take for you to mix a song for recording a song honestly we can knock the tracking out in a day and then usually probably a full day to do edits and and do a mix so i would say two days is the quickest i can get it done i'd rather have longer but you know i'm mostly working with most of my clientele is locals and, and hobbyist bands i get some other big stuff here and there but that's kind of my bread and butter right now and uh so i understand that time is limited and budget is limited and um, i'm happy to make it work but i definitely like whenever a band comes to me and wants to do the pre-pro and put in the time and uh, we can get more hands-on with it and then yeah who knows how long it could take <laughs> nice uh, how how long for a mixic you would say um if everything's tracked and i've got to do some edits and do the mix probably a full day to do it yeah What's a good lesson you've learned from another producer? You know, I think actually the most kind of eye-opening thing I learned that immediately made all my mixes so much better was when you told me about 
distortion. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. So it's very 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 very, very kind. It is funny though. That is like the the one that I uh, I get a lot from uh, a lot of people, especially after the creative live. Classes, oh right, yeah. The dis- distortion, not compression. And I should give credit that I learned that from Jay Robbins. Nice, nice. Yeah, no, that that definitely. As soon as I switched out, you know, ninety percent of my compressors for distortion, it just helped so much. <laughs> it, it it is that thing of like, you know, there, there's a lot of people who, you know, until that day you learn when you should be compressing and distorting. And I should say this: I'm still learning. Like, you know, as funny as like I actually like for years, like I've only had like compressors on the drums and maybe the vocals and maybe the bass on mix. And now I started doing some more harder an extra compressor on the drums recently and i'm like oh i've been dissing compression for so long and now i'm starting to love it again so so it, it, it is an ebb and flow thing of, of, of learning but yeah that's that's always a good one yeah i think my my favorite thing that i regularly pepper some extra compression on is actually like acoustic guitar like just get oh interesting yeah, just throwing it right at the end of the chain like I'll, I'll do one of those like cla 2a's and just throw it right at the mm. end and hit like a db or three and yeah in those country mixes, it just kind of reins it in a lot. Nice. Tell me one of the best moments you've ever had in the studio. I think the best moment recently, at least, was getting to work on the second Youth League EP. Um, we just did a new one for them at the end of last year. I'm finishing up mixing right now. You know, I've just I've known those guys for so long. Like I grew up with the guitar player and the drummer. We were briefly in a band together that never played a show. And I used to watch the guitar player play in a band with my old drummer. Uh, so it's just always fun hanging out with those guys, first of all. Second of all, I mean, those guys fucking rip. Like, the songs are awesome, and they're all incredibly good at what they do. And this time was special because it's the first time really ever I've had a band come in to track songs that I already know intimately well from watching them play them live. So I really got mm. to practice that thing of you know trying to get the the vibe and the energy sounding the way their live show does. And it was really cool because I, I felt like I knew exactly where to go for each part because I know exactly what it sounds like when I'm standing in a room with them and they hit that and it feels so good on this kick in or this dropout thing is so cool and it sounds so spacey to me when I see them play it live. And so like, let's throw some extra reverb on that and you know, that kind of thing. Uh, it was really, really fun to get to do that. That's rad. How about one of the worst moments and what you learned from it? Probably, I think actually like the first band I ever recorded that wasn't one of my own. I, I did it for really, really cheap. It was right before we did the Virgin Lung thing. I did it for really cheap. And, you know, they were just a really young high school band, and their singer just couldn't sing. Like, I mean, physically, mm-hmm. there was just not notes happening. He was kind of going for like a Green Day thing, I think. Like a Billy Joe kind of warbly, weird voice thing. And mm-hmm. it just wasn't really working. And so I, I kind of joked that I wrote all the melodies on that EP because I was just melodining in what I was guessing he was going for. <laughs> but the the positive that came out of it is that, you know, very early on, I figured out a lot of really creative editing tricks, <laughs> both for both for vocals and drums, ah, yes. where I can make things work that maybe shouldn't. But... <laughs> you know if it has to happen it has to happen yeah you know when i used to get really bummed out about how bad some of the musicians were i recorded when i used to work for alan douches he would always say listen you are so good at making somebody terrible sound good that it's gonna be very easy when they're good to just augment it that turned out to be true is that it was made whenever i got a great band it was like oh oh, i just moved (laughs) that okay yeah we're done wow this is great for sure 
Wow, he's just 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 off for one bar. <laughs> yeah, Whoa. yeah that, I mean that's <laughs> no hour and a half of editing. Ba- right, yeah, that's, that's and that's how it is. Like working with usually, that's why I love it so much, man. Like Zach knows the songs so well, and he literally comes in and sits down. We have the drums. We have like a crappy scratch track, and he just blasts through the song perfectly one time, and then I go, all right, cool, do it one more, and we do two passes through every song, and we're done. Like <laughs> it's so cool. That's awesome. Uh, what's the musical bane of your existence? Ooh, like my hate song or like the thing you hate the most in music? I would say it's a toss up between jam bands and the song, the reason by <laughs> Yeah. Those are my two least. Favorite <laughs> oh, jeez. You, you, you know, it's funny. I was just reading, um, Michael Beinhorn's, uh, Unlocking Creativity Book, which is a great book for producers to read, to give you some good thoughts on production for everybody who's listening. And even musicians too, but like it's written for the percent of the producer and everything he, every diss he has of a lack of creativity is aimed at that band and that song and that book. <laughs> yes, that's awesome. <laughs> so, so, so you're not alone in this. Man, it still comes on the radio. Like we, we always leave the radio playing on our front porch. Mm-hmm. And that's very, very, very Southern of you guys. Yeah. yeah. But it'll be playing still on the radio sometimes when I come in. I'm just like, ah, oh, dude, really? Like, that is not, not a good, good time. And I, 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 you know what? We, we, this is one of the reasons we're friends is I'm right there with you with the jam bands, too. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it's funny because I, I, I grew up loving Dave Matthews Band, but I just oh. I can't do jam bands like in the general sense. Uh, so that's, that's an interesting one. Yeah, I, I, I never, n- there's never been a jam band that, I, that I, I've liked. So, But I also grew up in the uh, Grateful Dead era, so it was easy to get allergic to that fact. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I got into to Dave Matthews more f- for the songwriting, listening to the records and then kind of gotcha. enjoyed the live show later. But yeah. So let's get into some of your taste in music. What's a perfect record and what makes it perfect? I was trying to think of a different one than I did in the written interview, but I really couldn't. This one's just still attached to me a lot right now. This record, Doom Loop by the band Mansions. Mm hmm everything is right about the vibe on that record. Like it's this really interesting blend of, you know, indie punk with these little subtle electronic elements, just layered, like peppered throughout the whole thing. It's lo-fi enough that it sounds cool, but it's still ultimately like really cleanly produced and sounds awesome. The songwriting all has this really great pop sensibility to it. Yeah. It's just a killer record like front to back. I just listened to it on, you know, on loop a lot, actually. It kind of represents to me like everything I like about music right now. Like if I were to start a, a new band, it would I would want it to sound like that kind of thing, you know. Interesting. I'm gonna ha- I'm gonna have to rock this one on my uh, walk to lunch after yeah, it's killer. And also that guy self produces uh, a lot of it. Like I think he did the mm-hmm. drums with someone. And I think everything else he did like in his apartment. That's why I recall. I, I I remastered two of his records, and I remember they were awesome. Yeah, the first one. When I first heard it, that was kind of what it was one of the early things that inspired me to actually try doing a lot of self-production myself. I was just really impressed by it. And I was like, I wonder if I could do this. Nice. So give me five of your favorite records and how they shaped your musical growth. First, (laughs) actually, I'm going to go with uh, Dave Matthews, the Live at Central Park album. I, I got into him through that Busted Stuff record. But then as I got more into it and I'd seen a couple shows and listening to that live album was just really, it's really well captured and, you know, say what you will about the band, they're all incredible players and it's just really inspiring to listen to a band just kill it like that on stage for like however many hours that record is like three hours, I think. Yeah, it's oh, insane. Wow. It's insane. Time. It's a three disc thing. And I used to just sit down and play drums along to it all the time. 
And it's kind of the reason I picked up guitar. Like I bought an acoustic guitar because I wanted to learn how to play like Dave Matthews. And I think that still informs my playing so much. Like I have a fairly unique guitar way, way that I play guitar, I feel like. And I think it's because of the weird rhythm style of playing that I got from trying to play Dave Matthews when I was a kid. Um, hmm. Yeah, and that oh, there's no no doubt he plays so, some very odd strumming patterns compared to most guitarists. Yeah, and really weird chord shapes and interesting voice leading stuff. But yeah, it just it, it got me excited to to play live and maybe want to be in a band, you know. Um, and so that's I think that's really the thing that got me into music early on. Second big thing for me was probably that acceptance record, Phantoms. Ah, yes. I remember being in high school and my dad picked my neighbor and I up from school and he was running the radio station at this point. So he pulled out a couple CDs and he was like, Hey, I got, I got uh, a couple things in today that I think you guys might be interested in. You know, let's put them in and listen to them. And we put in fallout boy under the cork tree mm-hmm. and just, you know, kind of listened through a little bit of the first few songs. And I was like, yeah, this is pretty cool. Whatever. Mm-hmm. And then we put in the phantoms record and I was like, Oh my God, what is this? Like, I wasn't even really into pop punk or, or pop rock at the time. I was still listening to mostly like Dave Matthews and like Bright Eyes and singer songwriter stuff like that. And I was just blown away by how clean and alive the record sounded and how amazing the songwriting was from a pop sense. And that just, yeah, that really started me down the path of loving bands like Jimmy World more. Yeah, that, that record uh, w- w- was a huge one for me. And when I got to remaster the vinyl, like hearing the mixes and their full glory, like through yeah, just like the raw thing. Ne- next time you're up, we'll, we'll have to sit down and, and do that one. Cause it is, it's just stunning to hear the extra details yeah. after like, that's one of the records I've heard the most. And like that first listen I did, it was just listening to it down before I figured out what to do for to the vinyl pressing. It was just like, Wow, there's even more here to find when I've heard this record a thousand times. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, that that kind of brings up, I think, probably my, my third record would be Devil and God by Brand New. Because of that exact thing, it's just so layered. There's so much content there and, and so much interesting creativity as far as the way the tones are working together. And I just, I remember the first time I heard it, I, I, I was just getting into Brand New uh, through a friend. And so I'd listened to the first, you know, two records and... I wasn't expecting it at all. And when I put it in, it was like, I, I think we were driving to a show, like I had borrowed my dad's truck to go to some show and I, I put it in the CD player and turned it up a whole lot at the beginning. And that first, yeah, comes in on sewing season. And I just like mm-hmm. flipped out, you know, like I just never heard or imagined music quite like that before. I mean, there's parts of that record that have legitimately like scared me because I've like mm. not been ready to hear what, what happened kind of thing, you know? Uh, so then after that, I think, Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy by Kanye West was really huge for me. Mm. Um, that that got me really interested in hip hop production. I, I've always listened to hip hop on and off, you know, whether it was on the radio when I was younger or um, more recently. Like that record, honestly, kind of got me back into hip hop. Um, so I've been listening back through a lot of, even getting back as far as like listening to like Big L and like really old stuff like that. But yeah, again, another record with just so many subtle layers, like things that I just never. I would never personally imagine. I, I, I like. Yeah, I listen to Kanye records. I'm just like, how did you think of that idea? Like, how does how did you sit down and listen to this part and go, yeah, this is what we're gonna do, you know? <laughs> like, um, and I think lyrically, that's probably my favorite Kanye album too, Twisted Fantasy. I guess lastly, I'd say Four by Four equals Twelve, the Dead Mouse record. Mm-hmm. That was really my first like, introduction to dance music, 
and it's just another one of those really like lively and clean sounding records where the production is just incredible. Uh, and I think that I think that record's really compositionally brilliant too because it's so minimalistic. I mean, obviously a lot of dance music is, but I feel like the thing he does better than a lot of other producers and DJs in that scene is feel when you need a change as a listener. You can really get into that kind of journey, dancey trance state, but you're never going to get bored. And right when you're like about to be fed up with listening to that part, it drops into the next thing, you know? Um, I, I feel like mm. it's a really hard balance to to strike. Definitely for me, like when I was a composition major, some of the other guys that were in my program did really experimental German composition stuff. And some of it was just unlistenable. It was so bad, like just so awful. But there was this one dude that uh, I got to be fairly good friends with because he used to be in bands and then got into this stuff. And he was great at it. I think he had that kind of band rock feeling of where the changes do actually need to happen. And maybe we don't stay mm. on this note for another five minutes, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there's, there's definitely like a, the one of the hardest things in that type of music, it seems like, for people is knowing when the tension span, when it's too ADD or not ADD enough that like the parts change at the right moment and there's enough movement. It's like it's so much about somebody's like attention. Right. And I feel like it's weirdly like the closest style of writing to pop music <laughs> because pop music is meant mm. to be so simple and straightforward. So what actually is going to capture the attention and and what is going to be the quote unquote fill or the interesting thing that happens if we really just want to keep the drums four on the floor the whole time, you know, when do we change it up? Mm -hmm. When does the one extra snare come in? You know? Well, I, I, I say to my like new book, it's like, uh, you know, there's a reason that minimalistic techno and pop punk is where people go first in music and probably like folk because it's all about just learning. Like if you have good emotion and, you know, you can come up with interesting hooks. It's like, you're going to be able to do that st style well, but it's also, you know, there's no real complex thing that you have to learn. Like you're not going to need to do extreme riffing. You're not going to need to really get into doing anything insane. It's just like figuring out some really easy things to play. That's yeah, how actually, together. I had a, a really firsthand experience of this recently, uh, on St. Patrick's day, uh, my roommates are in a U2 tribute band and, they, they pretty much just play once a year on St. Patrick's Day. And this year, their drummer took a vacation to Utah. And they're like, dude, that's that's the one day we always have a show. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sounds like so a very, asked, very drummer in. thing to do. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so they asked me to fill in. And so I learned like 30 U2 songs in like a couple weeks. And sitting down and learning those drum parts and really focusing on those kind of ties into that minimalistic thing we were talking about. Like, they were giving me shit about it because I jokingly said at practice, I was like, I was sitting there playing today and I just thought to myself, like, what is a fill? And they were like, shut up. You know, that's the stupidest thing you've ever said. I was like, no, no, no. But I mean, like, I'm sitting here trying to play along to these grooves, like, you know, dead on where he's playing the same groove the entire time through the whole song. And then there's two parts in this four minute song where there's, you know, two extra snare heads or something. Mm -hmm. And it's like, thinking about when I'm doing those and why I'm doing them, like trying to remember the cue of like, mm -hmm. Oh, it's because it's this part of the song and we want to amp up the energy just a little bit. Or like here I need two crashes instead of one or like, you know, like literally it gets down to the point of like, we're doing this one groove for so long that a, hitting a crash symbol is almost like a drum fill at this point. Like, cause we've stripped it back so far. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, that they are definitely a, uh, exercise in simplicity and drumming. Yeah. How about three favorite producers? I'm really loving Will Yip lately. 
all this all the stuff he's done that's come out i've been really into i i don't know there any of my super super favorite records but i really love the balance and composure record that he did a couple of years ago the super heaven stuff is awesome i'm really in all of that uh, and i like his his approach and his style uh, as a producer, Kanye is my favorite producer of all time, one hundred percent. Nice. I, 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 what, I made a joke that I think I said I was a a Kanyeishonary for Jesus. I think. <laughs> I can't. I, I, I like that. You know, I still I still haven't done. You know, I won't do Life of Pablo until he's done. I have this big thing. I don't listen to records until like I don't listen to leaks anymore. Right. I listen to like the final artistic product. Yeah, that I, I, does. I didn't think he was going to change as much. Otherwise, I would have waited too. But I've been I've been blasting that nonstop lately. It's really good. Yeah, it it's another one of those ones where like it's like you're hearing sound for the first time. Like I've never heard this before. Like, like John, my roommate went and saw the thing in the theater that they broadcast Madison Square mm-hmm. Garden. And he was like, yeah, while he was playing the record, I was just sitting there going, what is this? Like, I've never heard anything like this before, you know? That's awesome. I can't wait to get into it. Yeah. I don't think I can go. I don't think I've ever gone a week since I listened to twisted fantasy without talking to somebody about Kanye West at length. <laughs> wow. That's, that's really something. Yeah. And then, uh, I really, I think Kurt Ballou is awesome too. I don't necessarily mm-hmm. love the sound of his stuff, but I think he's a really incredible producer and I love learning more about his techniques and approaches. They're always so, so interesting. So cool. That's interesting. I, I actually really like the way his mixes sound. Yeah. I mean, I love some of them. Um, I just, it's not, he's not like a consistent go-to for me of like loving hmm. everything he does all the time, but yeah, I love, love his approach to it for sure. Nice. Uh, what's your favorite record of recent times and what inspires you about it? Well, until Life of Pablo came out, mm-hmm. um, that new health record that you that you told oh. me about, yeah, Death Magic, is so good. I, I listen to that pretty much only that nonstop for a couple weeks, um, just every day. Um, and again, it's that, it's that same thing, man. I've just never heard anything like it before, you know? it's You sit there and you listen to it and you just, how did they get this sound? How did they even think to try to get the sound, you know, like mm-hmm. yeah, the, the depth of emotionally driven inspiration. I feel like on something like that is just crazy. Yeah. The, the, they, they've definitely always had a unique thing. I, you know, the funny thing is too, is I'm pretty sure the guy that mixed that mixed a bunch of, or engineered some of the beautiful dark twisted fantasy. So that oh, also really ties in. nice. That's awesome. I'm pretty sure I heard that. I listened to uh, a, episode of no effects with Jesse Cohen. And I'm pretty sure that's what they said, but I could be tripping too. Sweet. And I think the other thing about that record and, and about things like life of Pablo or just, you know, Kanye, especially as a hip hop producer, the thing I appreciate about those style of records is they're, they're tied so well together as one complete compositional idea, you know? Mm, I'd say it's a good point. And I think that that definitely gets lost on a lot of rock bands these days. Yeah. So last question is what have you been working on lately? Well, I'm finishing up, Mixing uh, the new Youth League EP. I'm working on a few more singles for this really awesome country singer, uh, Casey Tyndall, that we do some mm-hmm. co-writes with. And yeah, we're trying to get uh, an EP put together for her slowly but surely. I'm not doing every everything on it. She's working with some people out in Nashville too, but it's, it's been a lot of fun kind of delving into that world for the first time in my life um, and getting to work on that. I'm working on an EP for my, my own new band. Uh, it's just a two-piece kind of rock thing. Kind of like Royal Blood, but a little more stoner, metally, Queens of the Stone Age-ish. Just put out a demo that I did for this band called Ill Effect. It's like kind of turnstile punk stuff. That was a lot of fun. Mm. That was a lot of fun because I got to really go overboard with the effects, which like nobody ever comes to me and asks for. Everybody's like, turn the reverb down, you know? 
but that like mm-hmm. that was like power trip like that they came to me with like turnstile and power trip as references and i was like jesus the snare reverb god like yeah, yeah. so yeah. i didn't quite go that far with so, it, so, so, bring it bringing it back to the yeah, 90s yeah for sure there's this cool band called uh wisher that if you like copeland go check them out um they've got two nice. songs in a video that they just put out that we did and it's awesome the dude jesse that sings is so talented this band Corvids, I didn't have before, was a cool record coming out. They're kind of like TTNG, like minus the bear stuff. And then we're about to start pre-production on something I'm really stoked about, which is my friend Rachel, who plays in uh, my my roommate's band and plays, I play in our 90s cover band with her. She's incredible, like easily hands down best female musician I've ever met. And we're about to start pre-pro for her new solo project where we're all just, she's kind of just recruited a bunch of us that she plays with regularly. And she's got some really, really stripped down versions of songs written. And we're just going to get in the room and kind of mess around with them. Try to approach it from, you know, like a Radiohead kind of realm doing a lot of sample drums. I'm going to be playing like synth bass a lot and stuff like that. So that's going to be really cool. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can be also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going.